Once again, good morning. We're in the middle of a series titled, I Have Sinned, Sign of False or True Repentance. This is actually the third message in this series. In the first two messages, we've seen that there is a repentance that is not the type of repentance God requires from his people. Uh, it's what the Bible calls as uh, false repentance. And we saw 10 characteristics of false repentance in those two messages. I'm not going to go through them today. Um, they are posted online for those uh, uh, who are interested uh, to know more. But from here on, our focus is going to be on true repentance. And we're going to do that uh, we're going to do that by first of all asking, what is biblical repentance? You know, we're talking about repentance, uh, how does the Bible define uh, true repentance? Uh, The repentance that is pleasing and acceptable to God. Because we've seen over the two weeks, there is a repentance that is not pleasing to God. Uh, It's not just knowing what's the wrong thing, but also we need to know what's the right thing. Uh, The true repentance. So what I'm going to do, this is kind of like a part lecture, part sermon. So bear with me. the, the important part is, you know, we want to understand uh, uh, what repentance is about. Uh, uh, why does God make a big issue about repentance? Because of this. God is holy. And for sinners to reconcile, to be reconciled back to himself has to be through repentance. In fact, as, as I was telling Dave, I was sitting there and... Um, uh, as people were worshipping through song, I saw his t-shirt. He does not know about this, but his t-shirt says, I know he knows what he knows about this t-shirt, it says, repent and believe. This July will mark 20 years of our church. The very first message on July 13th, 2003 was repent and believe. You didn't know that, did you? Where were you 20 years ago? Straying, probably. <laughs> uh, was from Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15. But also, what Wayne might not remember, or maybe he does, I don't know. The first message Wayne preached when he came to this church was repent and believe in the good news, Mark 1, verse 15. So all those thoughts were coming to my mind as I'm sitting and uh, worshiping God. The Bible makes a big issue of repentance. In fact, one Puritan said, man is born for one and only one purpose, to repent. To repent. So, in order for us to understand this subject, I want to start out by uh, uh, having a working definition of repentance. And then focus on going through it more in detail. This is the working definition I came up with. It kind of pulling different themes of the scriptures together. We're going to work our way uh, through this biblical repentance According to the scriptures, my understanding is it's a change of the whole person from sin to God in thought, emotion, and will. That's on the inside, in thought, emotion, and will. And that will be evidenced outwardly by a life of obedience. The inside, the whole person on the inside, the thought, the emotion and the will and that will be evidenced outwardly 
through a life of obedience. The thought refers to that intellectual aspect where the person, where a person in their mind recognizes, I have sinned. We saw that, right? The very first sermon, I have sinned. It's a recognition. And the emotion follows after, when my mind understands I have sinned, now the emotion kicks in. There's a grief, there's a shame, there's a sorrow. My mind is informed, it affects my feelings. It's a sense of remorse. And the will, which is the third aspect, deals with the volitional side, where a person now resolves in their heart, I understand I've sinned, I feel sorry for my sin, I want to turn. I want to turn from my sin and turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a heartfelt desire that says, God, I want to turn from my ways and I want to turn to you and accept the forgiveness you continually offer through your son. So thought, emotion and will. All three aspects are involved, must be involved in biblical repentance. And when these three are genuinely present in a person's life, the inward life, it will be outwardly evidenced by a changed life of obedience. You see, biblical repentance is not merely a change of mind. It's a change of mind. Definitely there's a change of mind, change in thoughts, but it will outwardly result in a changed life. That's why I said biblical repentance involves the whole person. The whole person. Now please understand, I'm not saying that a person actually has to live a changed life for a period of time before repentance can, can be concluded as genuine. If that's the case, then repentance becomes a work that merits salvation. That's contrary to the Bible's teaching. We're clearly told we're justified by faith alone. A person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, said the Apostle Paul. In Romans 3 verse 28. What I am saying is this. When a person in their heart genuinely acknowledges they have sinned, feels shame for their sin and wants to turn from sin and turn to God through faith in Christ or as in the Old Testament, faith in God himself, they will begin to live a changed life. And that changed life is the proof that the repentance was genuine. Put it another way, the changed life is the fruit of repentance, the result of true repentance, not the basis for it. It's the fruit. So, once again, biblical repentance is a change of the whole person from sin, from self, from sin, to God, in thought, emotion, and will. And that will be evidenced outwardly by a life of obedience. Let's dig deeper into this subject. In today's message, we're going to survey the Old Testament and what the Old Testament has to say about repentance. And what you may find is this, the Old Testament's teaching on repentance is not very different from the New Testament, except that the New Testament gives a little more clarity because of the coming of Jesus. And in the next message, which would be the fourth in this series, we're going to look at what the New Testament says about repentance. And then in the fifth message, we're going to see based on just one verse from Paul's letters on several characteristics of true repentance. 
And then, Lord willing, the sixth and final message, we look at how to properly confess our sins as part of true repentance. So six messages in total. Today is the third of six. For sure, I didn't plan for this. I didn't see this coming. But as I told you in the first message, we're going through the Gospel of Matthew for those of you who are visiting with us. In Matthew 27 and verse 4, Judas, upon seeing Jesus being condemned, says, I have sinned. And I start looking at that because the, the Gospel writers put that following the heels of Peter's failure. Both acknowledge their sin. But why did one end up in heaven, one ended up in hell? That got me thinking and that's what led to this about this whole uh, false repentance and true repentance and, and so on. So uh, I think it's a good thing for us to go through this. So um, to make it easy for all of you, because we're going to go through quite a few scriptures. The scriptures are going to be put up on the screen so you can follow along with that or with your Bibles, whatever works uh, best for you. But I'm going to go at a little uh, uh, faster clip. Again, if you think, um, why is this subject so important? Um, again, because Jesus said it. Not once, but twice. Unless you repent, you will perish. Luke chapter 13, verse 3 and verse 5. Unless you repent, you will perish. So if you want to live, you must repent. It's as simple as that. So keep praying with me uh, uh, for the Lord to work in us individually and collectively as a church to experience true turning. True turning. Unless the Spirit works, everything is in vain. I, I can absolutely say that with utmost confidence. The Holy Spirit has to work. And He works in response to God's people humbling themselves and praying for wisdom and discernment and for the illumination that He alone can provide. And, and, and I hope by the end of this series or even as we walk through this that we will examine our own lives to make sure our repentance is genuine and it's not false. This is not about judging someone else's repentance. It's about our own heart condition. And if we even have an inkling of a doubt that it's not, solution is simple. Turning to Jesus. Running back to Him. Pleading with Him for mercy. And then starting to give evidence that our life is truly changed and changing. So let's pray and prepare our hearts to look at what the Old Testament has to say about repentance. Father, nearly 70% of the Bible is a record of what you, in your sovereign wisdom, wanted us to know before your Son came into this world. As we work our way through this massive portion of Scripture, give our minds understanding, stir up our emotions as we see the importance of this subject and how we so fall short and also empower us to turn from our ways and from our thinking and to turn to you. Convict us, Lord, even even as we go through this sermon. Convict me even as I'm proclaiming these truths. What profit is there for me, Lord, just to speak this to others and not have this text humble and crush me. So please, carry me, carry us as we work our way through the scriptures today. 
In Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. You know, there's often a misunderstanding by many, not just unbelievers, but also believers, regarding the Old Testament subject on sin and judgment and forgiveness. What I mean is, this: people often view God in the Old Testament as more like a punishing God. Not so forgiving. It's quick to smite people to death. Quick to burn them when they sin. But he appears to be the soft and gentle and kind in the New Testament. Such a wrong view. You will find, Lord willing, as a result of today's sermon and our next message from the New Testament perspective that God is equally serious, if not more serious in the New Testament about the subject of repentance. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 11, it's not there, but I'm just quoting. He's, he's condemning the citizens of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. He says, you know, if people in Tyre and Sidon, even Sodom, heard what they heard and saw what you see, they would have repented. Greater judgment for you, decide, than those. Hebrews 12 talks about this. There's one speaking from earth now, one spoke from heaven, talking about the Old Testament. If this were judged for disobeying that, how much more? The New Testament actually puts a greater emphasis on the need to turn from our sin. So, get that thought out of your mind, looking at God as a punishing God. God is judge, God is holy, but also in the Old Testament, you find that's where God revealed himself as this long-suffering God. And I hope you, you see all those uh, things today that, uh, that will help us to see God's standard is the same. Turn from your sin. Turn to me. The first uh, passage we're going to look at in the Old Testament is from Leviticus chapter 26. Here you find God's continual call for people to turn from their sins and live. The context is Israel is in the wilderness. Here's God telling them. Before they would enter the promised land, in Leviticus 26, he's talking about blessings for obedience and judgment for disobedience. In that context of judgment, this is what Moses writes God's word for us. God is saying, if you, if you walk in sin, I'm going to send you into exile. I'll send you into judgment. But, while you are in judgment, in exile, this is what God says. But if they, that's the disobedient people, if they will confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness and their hostility toward me, which made me hostile toward them so that I sent them into the land of their enemies, then when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they pay for their sin, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land for the land will be deserted by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will pay for their sins because they rejected my laws and abhorred my decrees. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or abhor them so as to destroy them completely, breaking my covenant with them. I am Yahweh, the Lord their God. But for their sake, for their sake, 
I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. When they confess, I will respond. For their sake. For their sake. This shows God's desire for his people was for them to live, but they needed to acknowledge their sin. That's why Solomon, the wisest man to have lived according to the scriptures after the Lord Jesus himself, after the temple was dedicated, the first temple was built as the altar was being dedicated, he spreads his hands out and he offers his beautiful prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 6. The parallel is in First Kings chapter 8 also in verses 36 through 39. Notice, he keeps Leviticus 26 in mind and he's praying this back to God. That's what he says. When they sin against you, your people, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, right there. If you're sitting here thinking that you're not a sinner, you're deceived. You are. I am. There is no one who does not sin. And you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart, that's another way to describe repentance. They have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart from the inside and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and prayed toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Solomon could base this prayer confidently based on God's word in Leviticus 26. That's the beauty of praying the scriptures back to God. But the condition again was what? Repent. God wanted his people, even in the midst of judgment, repent. Repent. Later, years later through the prophet Isaiah, God called the disobedient nation to repentance with these words. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. You're so stubborn in your sin. I'm telling you the way to have peace, the way to have life, the way to have rest is in repentance. Strive trying to go your own, stop striving going down your own way. Find rest in me by turning from your ways and turning to me. The words of Jesus. I'm the one who can quench your thirst. All these other things you're running after. He told that woman at Samaria, they're not going to satisfy you. You're jumping from one relationship to another to another. You're trying to find your identity there. It's empty. So God is issuing a call, a loving call through the prophet. And later through the prophet Ezekiel, once again, God was calling the wicked nation to repentance. Ezekiel 18 verse 23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Does this sound like a God who rejoices in punishing people? He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? 
And again in verses 30 through 32 of the same chapter. Therefore you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways. Because your way is contrary to mine. I will judge each of you. None is exempt according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. So what is what do you need to do to avoid the judgment? Repent. Turn away from all your offenses. Then your sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. In the same chapter, you see God's heart here. Turn from your ways and live. God is not even obligated one bit to call us to turn. Right? Think about it. God is not obligated at all. Yet, again and again and again, what is God doing? Turn. Turn. Find life. Find life. No other prophet, no other religion issues this kind of a call, a loving call. Turn and find life life in me. I am the life Jesus said. No other religion says that. I am the life. He doesn't say this is the way to life. The way to life is me. Me. God's longing for his people was that they live not perish. Hosea issued a similar call to the nation. Once again, turn from your wicked ways and turn back to the Lord through these words. Hosea 14 verse 1. Return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Return. Come back. Come back. It's clear, isn't it? God, that's just a sampling. We're going to look at more, but you can see God's heart in the Old Testament was that He wanted people to live, not perish. Even though the people were bent on sinning, you would have none of it. Still, he keeps issuing the call again and again and again. This is the heart of God. A compassionate God. A God who offers life. But in order to experience that life, people have to turn from their sins. Repent. Not just from sins, but turn back to God. Let's go back to our working definition of Repentance and work our way through it through some specific passages that highlight those three uh, three things that I said that would be outwardly evidenced also. Biblical repentance again is a change of the whole person. The inside first. From sin to God. In thought, that's the intellect side. In emotions, that's where the feelings come. And then the volitional side, the will. I want to turn. And then that will be evidenced outwardly through a life of obedience. So, starts at the thought, thought side, acknowledging, I have sinned. Now in the Old Testament, there's several examples of people who acknowledge their sins, both unbelievers and believers. In the, in the first message, remember we saw five people, five unbelievers, who actually said those words, I have sinned. Pharaoh, number one. The disobedient Israelites in the wilderness, number two. Balaam, number three. Achan, number four. And the first king of Israel, Saul, number five. Some of them even said, I have sinned more than once. But it starts there. There's an acknowledgement. I have sinned. Even though they were unbelievers, they still acknowledged. Intellectually, they recognized we are guilty. But the problem is, they didn't go beyond that. 
It's a starting point. But you got to go beyond that. And there are people who went beyond that. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Example number one is Job. The man who feared God and shunned evil. Even though Job was a true believer, he starts out well. But as you read through, you got to go beyond Job chapter 2. We can't jump from Job chapter 1 and 2 and then go all the way to 42. As you go through the full, of, full portion of Job, you see Job spoke certain things that he should not have spoken. He never cursed God. But he spoke certain things that he should not have. So when God revealed himself to Job, confronted him, Job now sees his sin. He sees that he spoke certain things that were wrong. So in Job 42 verse 3, this is what Job says. He acknowledges his sin. You asked, speaking to God, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. That's acknowledging sin. I don't know what I was talking about. It's clueless. I was saying, let me call him to account. Let me do this. Let me do that. But then when God met him, he says, I'm wrong. I'm in the guilt. The creature can never question the creator. Another example, David. Centuries after Job, David, the man after God's own heart, commits adultery with Bathsheba and puts her husband to death, Uriah. Nine to ten months go by. God through the prophet Nathan confronts David. David, you're the man. You're a sinner. In 2 Samuel 12 verse 13, David cried away. And then that, there's a reason why he's called the man after God's own heart, isn't it? I have sinned against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12 and verse 13. That's not the only time David said I've sinned. You know that? Two more times he said that. Years later, David takes a census of the fighting men that he has. He gets convicted. The Holy Spirit convicts him. 2 Samuel 24 and verse 10. This is what we read. David was conscience stricken after he had counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. I've sinned greatly. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. And as God judged his sin by sending the angel of death to destroy the people, once again we see David acknowledging his sin. Verse 17 of the same chapter, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. Wow. Three times. We have a record of David acknowledging I have sinned. Guess what? In the first message we saw three times, Saul also said, I have sinned. 1 Samuel 15 verse 24, verse 30, and 1 Samuel 26 verse 21. What a contrast. So it's not just saying I have sinned, but you need to go to the next step. So we see in the Old Testament, believers and unbelievers acknowledging their sin. That's the starting point. I have sinned. Not blaming others. Neither Job nor David were blaming others. I have sinned. That's it. I have 
sinned. But that alone is not enough. One has to go forward to experience the second step, which is to have the emotions affected, our feelings. Meaning, I feel sorry for my sin. I feel genuinely shameful for what I have done or failed to do. And that should not be surprising to us. Mourning should not be surprised to us because our Lord Himself said in the second beatitude in Matthew 5 verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn. What mourning is He talking about? Loss of earthly things? No. Mourning over your sin. Mourning over your sin. So mourning has always been a part, integral part of true repentance. Let's look at some examples of people in the Old Testament who not only acknowledged but also felt this sorrow and shame and this remorse. Job, once again, he acknowledges in Job chapter 42 verse 3, I have sinned. But then notice, as a result of his acknowledging, there is a sorrow and shame in his heart. Look at verse verse 6 of Job chapter 42. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. If you have the 1995 NASB, it says, I retract. It's it's a Hebrew word that specifically is used to describe one's deep inward sorrow for sin. It's a deep inward sorrow. And by Job using dust and ashes along with the word repent, what he's saying is this, this inward feeling. Dust and ashes is a way of expressing grief. This is how I feel. Already sitting on an ash heap when this whole thing is happening. Literally sitting there but also figuratively saying, this is, God, I want you to know, I'm really sorry for my sin. I spoke against you. What was I thinking or not thinking? Have you ever felt that kind of emotion when you've sinned? That you really feel bad. You're on your own. You're just feeling overwhelmed with guilt and the shame and the sorrow. Perhaps nobody even knew about your sin. But deep inside, you're sobbing. Sometimes it comes out. Sorrow is a vital, integral, second part, second component of repentance. In fact, God Himself predicted that in the future, before the Messiah, Jesus returns in glory, sinful Israel, in context called Ephraim in Jeremiah 31, 19, they will repent of their sins and express great sorrow for their rebellion through these words. After I strayed, I repented. This is corporate Israel talking about during the tribulation time before Jesus returns. They look back at whom they pierced and that brings sorrow to them. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand. Notice that. After I came to understand. That's the intellectual part. I have sinned. Notice what followed. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. So, when the mind is informed, the feelings are activated. After I came to understand, I am now overcome by sorrow. It's the godly mourning Jesus talks about that Israel will experience in the future. In fact, God himself required that people 
have sorrow as part of genuine repentance. Joel chapter 2 verse 12. This is what God says. Even now declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart. So there's that inside. With fasting and weeping and mourning. So you see there. Fasting, weeping. Fasting is always associated with humbling and mourning. We fast sometimes to get earthly things. We forget the whole sin aspect, that's humbling aspect that's associated with it. Fasting and weeping and mourning. So it's clear God himself required sorrow to be a part of genuine repentance even in the Old Testament. Now please keep in mind, I am not saying one should conclude if their repentance is genuine based on the measure of their sorrow over sin. Meaning, I wept more than someone else. So my salvation is genuine. Or vice versa. I didn't weep as enough. My conversion is not something as so and so. No, each person varies in the way they grieve over their sin. And each time, the same person may vary in the way they grieve also. The point is, where there is a true work of the Holy Spirit, there will be genuine, heartfelt sorrow for our sin. That's the point. That's the point. Let me remind you again. This alone is not enough. We have the mind informed. We have the emotions affected. Some people stop there. That's the problem. Old Testament again has examples. People went through the first two things and then they stopped. There was never the third step of wanting to turn from their wicked ways and sadly as a result they experienced God's judgment one more example the people of Joel's day so what, what God is telling people again here is you need to have this repentance from the heart in the same Joel the following verse Joel 2.13 after calling people you know with weeping and fasting and mourning I want you to Turn to me. Then he says, verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. It's not just having torn clothes or throwing dust and ashes on you, which was a physical way they would express their sorrow and shame. It's not just about that. I want your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Does that give you a picture of a God who delights in sending people to hell? Again, he's calling wooing them back. But he says, it has to be from the heart, not just some outward thing. In your heart, you must be willing to turn from your sinful ways. What God has been and is always after is the heart. Is it truly grieving for its sin and truly wanting to turn from its sin? David David clearly got this point. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm that was birthed out of David's repentance for his adultery with Bathsheba. As a gem of a psalm. Over years, people have found comfort going back to Psalm 51. Notice what David says in verses 16 through 17. This is a broken and a contrite David, a repentant David. He says, he says to God, You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. What's David saying here? Is he saying that 
bringing sacrifices was useless i mean after all god commanded the people to bring sacrifices is david saying it doesn't mean anything no that's not what he's saying what david is saying is god i know if i'm bringing these sacrifices without the right heart it's useless i understand that that is why i'm first and foremost offering you my heart which is broken and contrite because you confronted me through nathan the holy spirit confronted me my heart is broken my heart is broken and that's why first thing i want you to accept god is my heart because when that kind of a, a attitude is there then the sacrifice will be accepted because the very following two verses this is what he says verses 18 through 19 if the heart is the has the right attitude then the sacrifices which are a requirement in that dispensation would be accepted may it please you to prosper zion to build up the walls of jerusalem then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole then bulls will be offered on your altar see what david is essentially saying is this lord as the king of israel i sinned and i brought judgment and as a king i didn't bring judgment just upon myself my family and the nation so it is important god that you accept my heart which i'm giving to you and once that's accepted the sacrifices that are required will be acceptable then you will show continually you will show favor upon your people sacrifices are important but they should come from a right heart is what the old testament signifies so it's not just having our thoughts the mind and the intellect but the heart matters in these things when the heart is right then there will be a desire to turn which is the third and final component of repentance that's the volitional aspect the will the mindset the mindset that's resolved to turn from sin and turn back to god once again the old testament clearly clearly describes god's desire for his people was not just they acknowledge and even feel bad about it but actually desire to turn from their wicked ways isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7 that very familiar passage seek the lord while he may be found call on him while he is near which means there is a time when god won't be found that's why today is the day of salvation you cannot keep putting it off death can come like that even though people around us die we still think we have time foolishness delusion seek him while he may be found call on him while he is near let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts that's turning from sin let them turn to the lord see you don't just turn from sin but you turn to god you turn from something and turn to someone for wicked forsake their ways unrighteous their thoughts deep inside to you that's turning from sin turn to the lord and he will have mercy on them and to our god for he will freely pardon jeremiah chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 same same idea if you israel will return god says return to me so it's not just turning from sin and you know doing some little clean up here and there 
but turn from sin turn to me if you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray again that describes turning from sin and if in a truthful just and righteous way you swear as surely as the lord lives that's another another time describing turning to the lord then the nations will invoke blessings by him and in him they will boast turning from sin and turning to god ezekiel god says the same thing verse 21 of chapter 18 but if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they've committed once again what is the describing turning from sin and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right that's a turning to god keeping his word that person will surely live they will not die the point is this a sinner cannot continue holding on to sin stubbornly and at the same time turn to god they're mutually exclusive true repentance involves a turning from sin followed by a turning or returning back to god and walking in obedience to show proof that the heart turn was genuine god is not impressed by an outward display of repentance if there is no desire in the heart to truly turn from sin and turn to him in fact such half-hearted repentance angers him brings severe judgment from his hands in zechariah chapter 7 this is what happened the people did the first and second thing and even the third thing superficially they acknowledged they had their emotions stirred up even they said we're going to turn but they never did so what we read in zechariah 7 beginning in verse 4 then the word of the lord almighty came to me ask all the people of the land and the priests when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years was it really for me that you fasted do you see there they did all those outward things 70 years they're in exile here in babylon they did all that they acknowledged their sin they even expressed an outward sorrow but it was all a sham it was six and when you were eating and drinking were you not just feasting for yourselves are these not the words the lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the negev and the western foothills were settled and the word of the lord came again to zechariah this is what the lord almighty said recalling god's words from before administer true justice show mercy and compassion to one another do not oppress the widow or the fatherless the foreigner or the poor do not plot evil against each other here was god's call to turn from sin you're saying you're turning to me through fasting and all this but you never turned from your sin and it's interesting whenever god talks about turning from sin he focuses so much on our relational aspects with one another isn't that amazing how we treat people is a true indicator if our repentance is genuine or not you said this to me i cut you off should those words come from the mouth of a genuine repentant christian because the text says here right show mercy and compassion to whom one another one another but notice 
Verse 11, but they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly they turned their backs and covered their ears. You can sit in church, even listen through this whole series, but resolve in your heart. If somebody God is bringing to your mind, you need to forgive, you need to go. Reconcile. You're saying, nope, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want. This is what you're going to face, this is what I'm going to face. If you make, they made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by His Spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate so that no one traveled through it. This is how, notice that last phrase, this is how, they made the pleasant land desolate. They made it by their own actions. You remain stubborn in your sin. I remain, I remain stubborn in my sin. I am the one. You are the one who is going to bring judgment upon yourself. They made the pleasant land desolate. I didn't make it. They made it. Yes, they fasted. Yes, they mourned. But I told them again and again, in practical ways, in your relationships, things must change. Things must change. Look at how relationships are in the believing community now. The world looks, laughs. And no wonder we're not effective. Jesus said, by this all will know. You are my disciples, you have love for one another. But now it's become, by this all will know. You are my disciples. How you criticize, attack, chew others out. Or silently hold that bitterness in your heart. It's not listening. It's not understanding. It's obeying. So we see from these few examples it's important that we acknowledge sin, the intellectual side. There's a sorrow for sin, that's the emotional side. And then there's that volitional aspect, turning from sin and turning to God and seeking to walk in His ways. And the outward life will give evidence will give evidence. There's always a change on the outside that will give evidence. One famous incident in the Old Testament gives a beautiful picture of this whole thing. It's a very familiar one for us. Even if you've not been a Christian for a long time. It's an incident in Nineveh. Jonah goes. The reluctant prophet goes. He preaches. And all his message in Jonah chapter 3 Verse 4 was this. The Ninevites were wicked people. And all he says is, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah chapter 3 verse 4. Notice their response, starting from the king himself. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. So you may say, okay, I get this. There's an acknowledgement and there's the emotional side. 
But you know what the text goes on to tell us? Look at verse 7 on. This is the proclamation the king issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. You see that there? A commitment. They're just fasting and mourning. Okay, they've not really gone and cleaned up anything. But this is their resolve. As they're seeking God. The commitment was to turn from sin and turn to God. And then comes the prayer of hope. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Then notice verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. They still haven't physically turned. Keep that in mind. They're still fasting. But in their heart, it was a genuine desire to turn. God saw that. Because he sees what's in the heart. He saw this came from a broken and a contrite heart. He saw what they did. He relented. And did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Again, don't miss the picture of a God who delights in giving life to people in the Old Testament. Not that they perish. So you see, it's clear in the Old Testament Repentance involved a change of the whole person from sin to God in thought, in emotion, and in the will that will be sooner or later evidenced outwardly by a changed life. Inside out. That's the beatitude thing that Jesus talks about. The whole Sermon on the Mount is what? Inside out Christianity. And when there is such repentance present, God's blessing is always there. Blessing of life. Blessing of life. Eternal life. Always. Folks, the New Testament teaches the same thing with a little more seriousness. But that's for the next time. In the meantime, let's ask the Lord as David asked in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. Any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Why is he saying, see me, see if there's any offensive way. So if you see it, bring it out to me. So I can turn. And that way, I can walk in the way that leads to everlasting life. Let's be open with the Lord as David was open. In another psalm, in Psalm 19, Verses 12 and 13. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. When he prays for forgive me my hidden faults, David is not saying, just remove it out. He's saying, bring it to my attention so I can acknowledge, grieve over it, ask for your forgiveness and turn from it. That's his idea. Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. You feel like hurting someone. You think next time when I say, this is what I'm going to say. You rehearse it over and over. Or you look at that potential opportunity. Oh, if I compromise, I can get that promotion. Willful sin. Keep your servant. We cannot do it on our own. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Sin shall not be your master anymore. 
have died to sin. Paul talks about in Romans 6. We're no longer slaves to sin. Slaves to righteousness. Then he says, I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So the call is for you and me to pursue a blameless life by going to our gracious and loving Father in the name of His one and only Son, the one and only Savior, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus, and asking Him to help us live a life that's pleasing in His sight and where we need to be forgiven of our sins. You must ask the Father, cleanse me, wash me with the blood of your Son. I believe Jesus paid the full price for my sins, Father. I come and accept Him. And I keep coming again and again and again, asking you to cleanse me. Let's not play with sin, but firmly resolve to part with it. I know today is Mother's Day. Perhaps some of you mothers were expecting me to speak on motherhood. I'm sorry if I disappointed you. But let me close with a special word of encouragement to mothers and those whom God would call to be mothers if it is His will down the road. I know you seek the best for your children. I know you work hard. You sacrifice a lot. The best gift, mothers, that you can give to your children is not the best school. It's not the best clothes. It's not the best room in the house. It's not the best food. It's not the best medical care when they're sick. All these are good. But what you need to seek to first and foremost give is this. Give them through your words and your life a picture of a truly repentant heart. A heart that is humble and contrite over its sin. Give them a consistent picture of how a repentant sinner can find life through Jesus. Show them how a truly repentant person is one who does not hide her sins. But even if she keeps falling again and again in humility, in quiet submission, she runs back again and again into the loving arms of Jesus. You may think, I seem to make a 180, but then I make another 180 back where I started. You know what? Keep doing that 180 again. Sooner or later, God will help you to overcome. Give them, mothers, your children, the image of how the gracious Father, through His Holy Spirit, is making you to resemble more and more like His Son as you continually keep displaying the fruits of genuine repentance in a growing measure. Keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would Help everyone, mothers, fathers, single people, whatever state we find ourselves in, to be people in whose heart you work that work of genuine repentance so that we will heed the call and live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.